Gracious Father in heaven, we're going to dive into your word once again. And we don't want to take this lightly. We don't want to take anything for granted. We don't want to rely upon human wisdom. We desire, above all things, wisdom from heaven. So please, we're asking for a special outpouring of your Holy Spirit. The Bible says that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And you know how, how natural, how flesh-oriented our hearts are. And so we just pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. Lord, you know that there have been burdens throughout this day, maybe even things that we, we are carrying on our hearts into these meetings. And right now, just in prayer, as an exercise of faith, we want to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. Thank you for Psalm 55, verse 22, that says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved or shaken. God, we pray that that would be our experience tonight as we just exercise that faith, that trust to, to know that you are in control. So, as we're opening up the word, please speak to us just what we need to hear. In Jesus' saving and precious name, let everyone say, Amen. So, it's a good question. Whatever happened to right and wrong? I mean, you take a look at the times that we're living in, and it seems like everybody's, well, not every. that's a generalization, but you get a sense that maybe our moral compass is just a little bit off, right? Generally speaking, on a societal, cultural level, that our moral compass has become disoriented. It's been shaken up just a little bit. Now, this was a Time Magazine cover back in 1993. How many of you weren't even born yet? No, I'm kidding. Okay, 1993, and the, the cover says, America the Violent. America the Violent. It's a telling cover, right, of, of what life was like back in the 90s. Man, the 90s. I thought the 90s were, were good old days. But apparently, it was, it was relatively violent. And where have we come two decades later? How are we doing? According, yeah, according to this news article, 2021 is on track to be America's deadliest year of gun violence in two decades. You know, you look at the crime rate, especially particularly regarding gun violence and stuff, and since the 90s, there were quite a few initiatives that really had impact. Numbers were going down, but here in 2020, as well as 2021, two decades later, it's becoming one of the deadliest years. In fact, according to this CBS News article, as of June of this year, there have already been 296 mass shootings in the United States alone. Mass shootings being defined as those that have injured or killed four or more individuals. In fact, the late Billy Graham, back in 2013, he, I think he put it very aptly when he said that America is drowning in a sea of immorality, right? I mean, that, that's really kind of a sad picture, but it, it's, it's accurate. Right? This is what we've been seeing. This is what we've been experiencing and watching all around us, and maybe within even closer circles, too close for comfort at times. And this is not a new trend, but it's one that speaks to humanity's brokenness, if you will. Right? Since we chose self over God in the Garden of Eden, this is what we are left with. And Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, <clears throat> actually says it like this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Right? The depths of humanity's wickedness is so much that, one, it's, it's deceitful, meaning it, it's more than meets the eye, but it's desperately wicked. And who can know it? 
You go to another verse in Proverbs chapter 20, I'm sorry, 28, verse 26, and it says this, he who trusts in his own heart is a what kind of person? Yeah, yeah, you don't want to say that to your neighbor, right? <laughs> but the reality is that, you know, I don't know if you're catching the theme here, the heart is desperately wicked in Jeremiah 17. When we trust in our own heart, that's really foolish. And then notice what this says on a societal level. This is describing uh, a, a group of people, God's people there in Judges chapter 17. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if you could just imagine, you don't have the context in front of you, but if you could just imagine, do you think the tone of voice of this sentence was, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes? Or was it celebratory? Or was it mournful and lamenting? Yeah, this was a sad, sad picture. All right, there in your handout, I kind of skipped that opening paragraph, but let's take a look here. A blessing, not a burden. Because of our fallenness, trusting to our own hearts, you can fill that in, trusting to our own hearts for moral direction is not only foolish, but destructive. It's not only foolish, but destructive. You could even put, it's not only foolish, but fatal, if you wanted to rhyme a little bit there, right? In other words, when we trust in our own hearts, especially so in the days of the judges, when people were just doing what was right in their own eyes, it led to the downfall of God's people again and again and again. The following paragraph says this, from this perspective, the old adage, just follow your heart, is poor advice to say the least. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> as long as our hearts are desperately wicked, we are in desperate need of a higher standard of moral values and direction. We cannot trust ourselves or other humans to set our moral compass. We must instead look to God and his moral compass, the Ten Commandments. Go ahead and fill that in. God's moral compass, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. I want us to notice this in James chapter 1, verse 25. <clears throat> notice how the Bible perceives God's law or God's Ten Commandments. It perceives it as a blessing and not a burden. Notice what James says. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This one will be blessed in what he or she does. <clears throat> I love that terminology. First of all, it's the perfect law. That means that there's nothing missing. It's complete. It's exactly what we need. But it also says it's the perfect law of, what's the next word? Of liberty. Of liberty. Maybe in your discussions, you were talking about, you know, some of the rules that you've encountered in life that you're actually thankful those rules were there, right? We were talking about it over here. I've gone to some national parks and some other state parks where I was really thankful that there were rules that you couldn't climb the rocks particularly when I have my eight-year-old and six-year-old who are very adventurous and stuff, right? The law that God gives to us is supposed to be a law of liberty, something that gives us freedom. Notice an Old Testament verse. This is from Psalm 119. It says, great peace, great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Nothing causes them to stumble. That's a beautiful thing. How many of you want peace in your life? Yeah? How many of you enjoy having liberty in your life. Yeah. You know what? God's law produces those things in our hearts. Yeah. Let's fill this out in our handout. <clears throat> From the perspective of both Old and New Testament writers, 
God's law is a law of liberty, okay? God's law is a law of liberty to those who embrace it, resulting in a blessed life of peace. Resulting in a blessed life of peace. And the point is this, that God's Ten Commandment law is not some means of arbitrary control, right? He is not just picking these out as like, okay, you're going to stay in line, don't do this, you don't do that, etc., etc., etc. No, no, no. His law is supposed to be a blessing, not a burden. I mean, can you imagine moving to a town where it was impossible for anyone to break the sixth commandment, you shall not murder? Can you imagine that? What kind of town, that would, what kind of appeal that would draw? Can you imagine moving to a neighborhood where no one ever broke the eighth commandment, you shall not steal? Who would need keys, right? Oh, car alarms and stuff. Can you imagine what it would be like if none of the Ten Commandments were ever broken? Where families and, and child-parent relationships were filled with respect? Where, where your things were your things and they were appreciated and affirmed rather than coveted and, and sought after? Man, can you imagine a world where none of God's commandments were ever broken? Sign me up, right? Sign me up. Get me the next ticket to, the, to wherever that is. And here's the point, friends. God wants us to know his law of liberty. So how many of us know it? Did you guys do the little pop quiz? Did you do the little pop quiz? How many of the Ten Commandments can you remember? Did anybody get 10 out of 10? Huh? Huh? Yeah? All right. Yeah, maybe, maybe. All right. What's really interesting is that back in 2007, I think it was, there was an animated movie called The Ten Commandments that came out. It was a cartoon animation type thing. And in order to promote the, the coming or the, the release of this movie, there was a research group that actually did a survey of 1,000 Americans to see how many people remembered the Ten Commandments and compared it to how many people, how many of the ingredients of the McDonald's Big Mac they remembered. How do you think that fared? 1,000 Americans, right? 1,000 Americans. Sad to say, those 1,000 Americans who hopefully don't represent all Americans, the results were sad, to say the least. It showed that 80% could name the hamburger's primary ingredient to all beef patties. Maybe you think of a song. Yeah, exactly. Okay, you think of this jingle. Oh, man. The power of music. That's right. <laughs> 80% could remember the two all beef patties. 60% could remember you shall not kill. Mm, right? Yeah. Okay, only 45% recalled the commandment, honor your father and mother while 76% could remember there was lettuce. 75% could remember the sesame seed bun. 66% the special sauce, and 62% the pickles. Oh, one, one other thing, 60% cheese. People could remember more about the McDonald's Big Mac than they could about the Ten Commandment law of God that gives liberty and peace. Yeah, <laughs> what we need is a scripture song for the Ten Commandments, right? Oh, man. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, especially in light of the fact that Satan himself has an issue with God's law. 
All right, let's go here. I want us to take a look at Satan's attitude towards the law of God. In Isaiah chapter 14, this is a verse that we've looked at in the past where he kind of puts a magnifying glass on what was going on in Lucifer's heart as he began his rebellion. It says, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will do what? I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. Very interesting. When Lucifer says in his heart, I will exalt my throne, what he's essentially saying is that he wants to establish a government completely different than God's. He wants to establish his own way of doing things, his own law over and above the government and law of God. And so there in your handout, you can write this in. In the rebellious heart of Satan is a longing desire to abandon God's law, to abandon God's law in order to establish his own. To abandon God's law in order to establish his own. You see, this rebellious trend of Lucifer there, in, it started in heaven, but infiltrated humanity ever since the fall. And at the Garden of Eden, when, when Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they essentially chose to be a law to themselves. And even, you know, this trend, it started in the Garden of Eden. It shows up in those of us who, in those seasons when we make a choice that we know is, is directly in opposition to what God wants for us. But it's also something that shows up even in those who are religiously minded, even in those who have a desire to serve God, even in those who have a desire to be loyal to God. Let's go in your Bibles now. Open them with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 15. If you're using the Seminar Bible, this is page 1270. 1270. All right, Matthew chapter 15 is the first book of the New Testament. Page 1270 in your Seminar Bible. When you're there, go ahead and say, I am there. Okay. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 15. And in this conversation here, we won't read all, all of the nine verses there at the beginning, but... Hear what's going on. There's a conversation between Jesus and a group of leaders, religious leaders called the Pharisees. They're asking him questions about, hey, why, why don't your disciples do things the way that we elders, we, we religious leaders have kind of prescribed for the people to do? Why aren't they washing their hands before they eat bread and things like this? And in verse 3, Matthew chapter 15, verse 3, he answers and says to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your, what's the next word in your Bible? Because of your tradition. For God commanded saying, honor your father and your mother and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Verse five, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me, oh, that's a gift from God. I'm sorry, that's a gift to God then he need not honor his father or mother. See, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, had come up with, with loopholes, so to speak, to get around actually following the very plain commandment of God. So in this particular situation, if there was a, a certain amount of money that fell to, uh, to an individual, uh, instead of using some of that money to gift and bless their parents and honor them in the process, they could specially dedicate it to religious use and say, no, I'm actually going to give it to the synagogue instead of to my parents. And thereby basically dishonor their mother and father. Now notice this in verse 7. The Bible says, hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth. In other words, they talk a good talk. And honor me with their lips, but their what? Their heart is far from me. This heart idea, it's going to keep coming up, okay? Just kind of put that on a shelf in your mind, and we'll get back to that later. Their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of who? The commandments of men. Do you see what's going on here? They're replacing the commandments of God with the traditions and commandments of men. So they're in your handout. Let's write this in. The religious leaders of Jesus' day manifested this inclination to abandon God's plain commandments by replacing it with man-made traditions. Man-made traditions, or you could even put man-made doctrines, as we read there in verse 9. And the reality is that this is not a trend just particular to Jesus' day, but it's also something that will take place in Earth's history, especially so in the last days. All right, we were in this passage just last night in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We didn't get this far into the, into the passage, but Paul is talking about the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. And he's really talking about the same uh, antichrist power that John was talking about and that Daniel prophesied back in Daniel chapter 7. Now notice what Paul says about this lawless one. Then the lawless one will be revealed... The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Did you notice the, the description that Paul gives to the Antichrist power? He is the what? The lawless one. The one without the law. It comes from a Greek term, anomia. A meaning without and nomos meaning law. Without the law. This Antichrist power is, is one that wants to do away with the very law of God. In Daniel chapter 7, the same sentiment shows up in the Old Testament prophecy. He, speaking of that little horn power that we read about, the little horn power that is the Antichrist, says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to do what? To change times and what else? To change times and law. So there in your handout, this is why we've written it. The Antichrist power in the last days will manifest this same rebellion by attempting to change. Go ahead and write that one in. By attempting to change and even do away with the very law of God. Now, if this is Satan's attitude against God's law, what do you think God's attitude is towards God's law? Now, if there's anyone who can tell us, I think Jesus could settle the matter for us, right? Let's take a look. Let's see here. Okay. Let's take a look at these verses here. Um, actually, you're already in Matthew. Go ahead and let's go first to Matthew chapter 5. All right, Matthew chapter 5. And let's look this up. This is page 1254. 1254 in your seminar Bible. Again, we're, we've transitioned now. We've seen what Satan's attitude is towards God law. God's law. Wants to get rid of it. Wants to abandon it. Wants to replace it with man-made laws. Now, what is God's attitude towards God, toward the Ten Commandment law? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. When you're there, say amen. amen. All right. Jesus speaking here. says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I love that. 
For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. All right? Jesus didn't come to throw away God's law. No, he came to fulfill it, meaning bring it to its full significance. In fact, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one of the little strokes, a jot or a tittle, a jot, you know, iota, things like that, the little dots and, and, and markings in the alphabet. It's easier for those things to, to move. I'm sorry, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for those to be removed from God's law. Go now to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. says pretty much the same thing, but just with a little bit more emphasis. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, just two books to your right. When you're there, say amen. Okay, this is page 1358 in the Seminar Bible. 1358. Luke chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus says, And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. So in the mind of Jesus, God's law is something that is enduring. God's law is something that will last forever. Go ahead and write that one in. In the mind of Jesus, God's law and all its details, right? The jot, the tittle, all these things, have a more enduring nature enduring nature than even heaven and earth itself. So this is obviously Jesus' attitude towards the Ten Commandment law. How about the followers of Jesus? What will their attitude be towards God's law? Let's take a look at these verses. They're in Revelation. Let's go to the go uh, Gospel of Revelation. Yeah, you can, you can say that. Uh, the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 17. That's on page 1675 in the Blue Bibles. Revelation chapter 12. And when you're there, say amen. amen. All right. Revelation 12, 17. At the end of this kind of, this Revelation 12 is kind of like a table of contents to the entire battle between good and evil. And again, we are going to look at this chapter in detail. I believe that's going to be next Friday, not this coming Friday, but next Friday. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, the Bible says, And the dragon, speaking of the devil, was enraged with the woman. And I'll just say this, uh, we'll study this again uh, two Fridays from now. But the woman here is a representation or a symbol of God's followers, God's people. Okay? The dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. In other words, the lineage of God's faithful followers at the end of time. Now notice the qualities here of the followers of God's people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. All right. Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Just turn a couple chapters over to chapter 14, chapter 14, verse 12. This, these characteristics pop up again. 14 verse 12 it says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who do what? Who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This same idea, it shows up again in chapter 22. Let's just go ahead and turn there so we can kind of get the full effect here. Chapter 22 and verse 14. Chapter 22, verse 14. When you're there, say, I'm there. The Bible says, blessed are those who do his what? His commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Oh, I want to be part of that number, right? Man, 
Apparently, those who are citizens of heaven have a common characteristic that they keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So there in your handout, in Revelation, one of the outstanding characteristics of God's end-time followers is their faithfulness to keep God's commandments. Their faithfulness to keep God's commandments. So you can see why Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? This law, this Ten Commandments, I didn't come to destroy it. No, it is enduring, more enduring than heaven and earth itself. And God's followers, uh, they, they adopt the same value for the Ten Commandment law. In fact, in the Old Testament, just let me just point your attention to a couple of, of ways that God handled the law. In Exodus chapter 31, this is uh, when, when God is actually writing the Ten Commandment law. It says this, When he had made an end of speaking with him, speaking with Moses, on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the, what's the next word right there? of the testimony. Okay, we'll get back to that. He gave two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with what implement of execution? <laughs> the finger of God. You know, prior to this, Moses had been writing down all of God's instructions, but this one, oh, no, no, Moses, I got this one. <laughs> he takes out his finger and he inscribes it not on papyrus from Egypt, no, but on tablets of stone, on tablets of stone. This ta these tablets, he called them the tablets of the testimony. And notice where, where God wanted Moses to store these special tablets of the testimony. It says in Exodus chapter 25, verse 16, And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. Into what exactly was the testimony supposed to be put in? Into the ark. The ark. Is, is this talking about, did they find Noah's Ark somewhere? Is that what? No, no. This is actually talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, the Ark of the Covenant. Back in the wilderness, God had instructed the children of Israel to construct a sanctuary. A sanctuary that was supposed to be kind of a live demonstration or an object lesson of what salvation really involved, what salvation really entailed. And we're going to go into detail into this whole sanctuary concept in a future presentation. But what I want us to notice is that there were three compartments. They're from left to right. You've got your altar of burnt offering. And then you've got a, a veil through which the priest would come in. You can kind of see how this, this drawing is laid out, like that someone just kind of lifted the walls, so to speak, so you can kind of see inside. So you've got, working from left to right, you've got your altar of burnt offering going into what was called the holy place, where there were certain articles of furniture. And then beyond that was what was called the most holy place. And in the most holy place, the high priest, and not just any priest, but the high priest would go in only, exclusively, and they would only go in once a year. And there in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And this was supposed to be a symbol of God's throne. You hear that? It was a symbol of God's throne, the Shekinah glory, the, the pillar of cloud that, followed, or that led the children of Israel by day and pillar of fire by night. It resided right over this most holy place. This was to be a symbol or a visible representation of God's throne. In fact, what you see over the Ark of the Covenant, the way they were supposed to construct it is that two angels were covering the throne or covering the Ark, which is why when we read in Ezekiel chapter 28 about Lucifer being the covering cherub, he was probably one of those bodyguards of God. 
to begin with. All right, so where does God put his, uh, or with what does God write his law? With his own finger on what kind of material? Stone. Yeah, pretty lasting stuff, right? When, you, when, when your kids try to uh, uh, change your mind about things, you say, no, no, bedtime's at eight, and that's set in stone, right? It's not changing. <laughs> this is what God is trying to do. He's saying, no, no, this is for real. It's not going to be blown away by the winds of time. No, this is my law. And I want you to put it right where you know my throne is. Okay, where you know my throne is. So there, in your handout, let's fill this in. It's no wonder that God was very intentional to etch his unchanging law on two tablets of stone with his own finger. There you go. You guys are ahead of it. Great. Which he then instructed Moses to place in the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the very throne of God symbolizing the very throne of God. Just, again, another concept, just put that on a shelf in your mind that where God puts his law is his throne. All right. Now, what then? What then is the purpose of God's law? Well, what function does God's law have for his people that he would treat it with such uh, sensitivity and, and unchangeability and immutability? While Satan has sought to abandon God's law altogether, to replace it with man-made traditions and even change it, the Bible surely affirms its eternal, unchanging nature. So then, if it is that important, what kind of role does it play in your life? What kind of role should it play in my life? Let's take a look now. Let's go to Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. This is where the Ten Commandments are spelled out in detail. Exodus chapter 20. It's the second book of the Bible. And I believe it's page... Oh, I don't even have a page. Way to go. Page 98. Exodus chapter 20. My subheadings say it's the Ten Commandments. When you're there, go ahead and say amen. Amen. Now, as you're kind of scanning this, maybe the way that your Bible lays it out in terms of format and stuff, kind of has some special indentations there. You can kind of see where each of the commandments are outlined. You'll have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not uh, take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. Oh, I missed one. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, not bear false witness, and not covet. Okay, these are the ten. The ten. Now, what's really interesting, I just kind of want to point our attention to, is that those Ten Commandments, they start listing in verse 3, but there is a very important introduction in verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's not just some hallmark card just to kind of warm your heart before hearing, you shall not, you shall not, you shall. No. It's a very important connection that prior to outlining the Ten Commandments, God reminds them of two things, who he is and who we are to him. He says, I am the Lord, your God, and I brought you out of Egypt out of bondage. In other words, he is giving the Ten Commandments to people who have been saved. Did you hear it? 
He's giving his Ten Commandments to those who have been brought out and redeemed from slavery. I want us to understand something. Here it is. You can write this down. The Ten Commandments describe how a saved people ought to live. The law shows us what it looks like to live in covenant relationship with God, not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. That's powerful to me. <laughs> Remember, how did the children of Israel experience freedom from Egypt? It wasn't what they did. It was the blood of a lamb. Right? When they were at the, the edge of the Red Sea with Pharaoh at their back and nipping at their heels, what was it that resulted in their salvation? In Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, God says, Stand still and see the salvation of God. They didn't do anything, but God made a way for them. How did this people experience salvation? It was the blood of the Lamb by standing still in God's salvation. And so to these saved people, he describes, these are the Ten Commandments. In fact, when you look at the, the grammar and construction of the Ten Commandments in Hebrew, they are actually not written as imperatives. Do you guys know what an imperative is? An imperative is a command. They're actually in the declarative. Hey, I brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This is how you're going to live. You're going to have no other gods before me. You're going to have no graven images. It's not primarily a description of what you cannot do, but it is a description of what a saved person does. Wow! <laughs> that is so cool. That's why in 1 John, uh, John the beloved disciple says, and God's commandments, they are not burdensome. Why? Because when you're in a saving relationship with God, this is just how we live. This is just how we live. Now, uh, let's see here. I'm, I'm kind of falling behind here. In Romans chapter 7, in Romans chapter 7, we've got to ask this question then. Okay, so if God's law shows how saved people live, what function then does God's law have for those who aren't in that saving relationship with him? who haven't yet experienced deliverance from sin by the grace and power of God. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 tells us this. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through what means? Except through the law. In other words, when I am living outside of a relationship with God, God's law tells me when that's the case. It tells me when I'm not in step with his will. It tells me when I'm loving self over loving God. That's what the law does for those who are outside of a saving relationship with him. That's why it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the what? The knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul is making it very clear. Your obedience to the law cannot justify you. Let's make, let's make sure that, that we have that clear. Our, our, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, according to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. So by the deeds of the law, no one is going to be justified or made right with God. However, by the law, we see our need for justification. 
Do you follow that? Yes or no? Yeah? By the law is the knowledge of sin. You know, some have described the law then in this light like a mirror, right? You know, you, you, after one of these delicious meals, you, you go to the bathroom and uh, you start freshening up and you realize, oh man, nobody told me about this spinach. <laughs> right? The mirror does a good job of telling you when you need some adjustment, when you're just a little bit off, right? But it would be foolish for me to try to rip that mirror off the bathroom wall and, and clean my teeth with it, Right? <laughs> Yeah, that would create a little bit more burden on the building fund, I think. No, the point is, mirrors have a function. They demonstrate our need, but they don't fix that need. Yeah? In the same way, the law is like a mirror. It makes us aware of our fallen condition, but it cannot remedy that fallen condition. And this helps us understand some of the, uh, the New Testament references that might appear to have a negative stance towards the law of God. What Paul is addressing in his day is a misuse of the law. And he's saying, hey, we're not under the law, not to say that the law shouldn't be regarded any longer, but we are not under the law as a means of salvation, as a remedy for our soul. The law has a specific function. He's already told us it's by the law that we have the knowledge of sin. And there in your handout, let's make sure we write this in. Conversely, the law also shows us when we are not, when we are not living in covenant relationship with God. While the law points out how we've broken relationship with God, obedience to the law is not the means of repairing that relationship. And so this is why in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul says it like this, Therefore, the law was our, what's the next word there? The law was our tutor, like educating us about something. Oh, educating us about what specifically? Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to who? To Christ, that we might be justified by what means? By faith, right? By trusting in Christ's merits and not our own. The law leads us to that relationship with Jesus. So there in your handout, God's law plays a crucial role in our experience of salvation. Well, what is that? By pointing out sin, it leads us to put our faith in the Savior. By pointing out sin, the law leads us to put our faith in the Savior. So the law educates sinners of our need for God's saving grace. So let's talk about grace then. Grace, grace, God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2, I love this one. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, probably the most, uh, yeah, the, the most prominent verses that come to my mind regarding God's grace. And I don't know what you think of when you think of the word grace. I've heard it said like this in an acronym, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And this is how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been, what? Saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's powerful. It's by grace that we are saved. It's not of our own doing. It's all God, just like it was at the Red Sea. Stand still and see the salvation of God. 
Go with me to Romans. Romans chapter, oh, let, actually, let's make sure we fill this in. In your handout, God's grace is the only means, okay? God's grace is the only means of salvation from sin. Eternal life is God's gift to us. Now let's go to a verse in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, take your Bibles, go with me past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans. Romans chapter 6, this is page 1475 in your seminar Bible, 1475. When you're there, go ahead and say, I beat you. Ooh, quick, quick on the draw. Romans chapter 6. I'm going to get there. I got you. Okay, here we go. Are we there? Yeah? Romans chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. Here's what Paul says. Man, in Romans 6, 7, 8, very deep stuff. Paul is really kind of unpacking this whole concept of, of the law and how that plays out in the believer's life. But here are just a couple of verses. Verse 14 and 15. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Woo! Can you say amen to that? <laughs> sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under what? Under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And his answer? Certainly not. Okay, first of all, primary point that Paul is getting across is sin is not your master. Amen. Sin doesn't have dominion over you. Why? Because you're under the grace of God and that saves you. Grace is the means of salvation. So when he says you're under grace and not under law, he's saying you're under grace, not under law as a means of salvation. When he uses that word or that phrase, not under law, he's not saying, get the law out of here, hit the road, Jack. No, he's saying you're no longer under the law as that which saves you. And it's because of that, that sin no longer has dominion over us. So there in your handout, let's make sure we write this in. While God's grace frees us from being under the law as a means of salvation, grace does not excuse sin. Grace does not, what? Excuse sin. That is, the breaking of God's law. So how does grace free us from sin's dominion? How does grace free us from from sin being a a master over us? Well, I tell you, Paul is not saying it's by by doing away with the law, but he is going to tell us it's by changing our hearts altogether. Notice going back to Ephesians 2. You know, in verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, you know, all this. And then the very next verse, kind of the crescendo of that whole score, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the Bible says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. When Paul is talking about the grace of God, he wants us to notice the full scope of it. Yes, it's grace that saves us. Not our own doing, not our own, you know, uh, gold stars and pats on the back. No, that's not what saves us. But when we are saved by grace, we are his workmanship, his work of art that he recreates. Grace not only pardons our past, but transforms us in the present. Praise the Lord. He changes us from the inside out. Grace, yes, saves us irregardless of our works. 
But at the same time, grace shows, I'm sorry, grace transforms us to live a life of good works, not by our own power, but by his. Works that we simply walk in. I like that idea. That, uh, see, which God prepared beforehand that we should just, just walk in them. This is the life we were meant to live. All right. Last page here. Get into our hand. This is, this is what I'm, I'm super, super excited about. Oh, did we not fill this in? Let's do this. God's grace saves us apart from works and recreates us to live a life of good works. Wow, God's grace is so comprehensive. It, it, he really does provide for all of our needs. Okay, last couple of sections here on the last page of your handout. God's law now. We need to consider this. God's law in the last days. What, what role then? Or what should we expect regarding God's law in the last days? We've already looked at a couple of verses that kind of demonstrate to us uh, the dynamics of God's followers still keeping the commandments of God. But I want us to go to Matthew chapter 7. I don't have this on the screen, so take your Bibles. Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, and then also in verse 24. So I was studying this a little bit more in depth over just the last couple of weeks. I've been really struck by the way God's Word points this out. Matthew chapter 7, when you're there, say amen. amen. For me, this is actually one of the most sobering passages in all of Scripture. This is towards the tail end of what is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in verses 21 to 23, Jesus gives a pretty strong, a very straight warning. Verse 21, the Bible says, and Jesus speaking, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Let me just pause right there. Not everyone who calls Jesus Lord will find entrance into the heavenly kingdom. That's really sad to me. The, the, the defining characteristic isn't that they say it with their mouth. Remember what we read in Matthew chapter 15, that these people draw near to me with their mouth. They talk a good talk. But it's he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now notice verse 22 and 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? In other words, these people who are saying, Lord, Lord, these people who have a profession of faith, they're also practicing faith too. I mean, they're, they're speaking on behalf of God. They're performing miracles on behalf of God. And then in verse 23, it says, and then I will declare to them, I never, what's the next word? Knew you. Again, life eternal is in knowing God. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. But notice this, depart from me, you who practice what kind of life? Lawlessness. What? I mean, these are people who are prophesying in God's name. These are people who are performing great signs and wonders. And yet they are practicing lawlessness. Practicing lawlessness. Again, sobering passage. And, and what I'll tell you is this. What this tells me is that it is possible to profess Jesus as my Lord. To even engage in outward uh, ministry acts, outward acts of service for the Lord, but to still practice, quote-unquote, lawlessness. It's that same word, anomia. 
from the lawless one of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And what this tells me is that lawlessness is more than just the stubborn disregard of God's law. It's also a mentality that thinks I can do enough to get there. Lawlessness is not only saying God's law hit the road. It is also saying God's law, I can do it. I don't know if that's sinking in. (laughs) This version of lawlessness is the idea of earning God's good favor. That is being under the law as your means of salvation. And according to this whole scene, that is described as practicing lawlessness. Go with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Don't worry. The news gets better. Okay. Matthew chapter 20. Well, just not yet. Okay. Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. When you're there, say, I'm there. Jesus is talking here in Matthew 24 in specific response to the disciples' question about signs of the end of the world. One of the things that he shares, starting in verse 9, 10, 11, he's talking about persecution, that God's followers will be mistreated. And then in verse 12, notice what he says. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. In the stream of this talk about persecution and God's followers being treated poorly, lawlessness is one of the signs of the end. Lawlessness, not just in the sense of, hey, I don't need to treat people well anymore, but also what we just talked about, lawlessness, thinking I can earn my way to heaven. There's stuff that I can do that can recommend me to God. That kind of mentality will actually engender cold hearts. That kind of mentality will actually engender a lovelessness. And you exhibit A, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who thought, that they could do enough to get the attention of God. And what kind of decisions did it lead them to do but to actually crucify the very Son of God? Apparently, in this context of persecution, that history will be repeated. That those who are lawless, both in the sense of disregarding God's law and feeling like there's enough they can do to fulfill God's law, will actually think they're doing God's will when they're actually persecuting God's true followers. This is uh, surprising and it's shocking, but it's a picture and prophecy that we need to understand so that we don't fall into that camp of, of actually being lawless when we think we're being lawful, right? Let's fill this out in our handout. Surprisingly, it is possible to profess loyalty to and service for the Lord while still practicing lawlessness. Go ahead and fill that in. While still practicing lawlessness. Whether expressed as a disregard for God's favor, I'm sorry, as a disregard for God's law, or as a self-righteous reliance upon it for salvation, lawlessness causes love in the human heart to grow cold. And that is a sobering picture. But there is a bright hope. Okay, there is a bright hope. And what is that hope? That there will be a people who are the exact opposite of that. 
At the end of time, while those who practice lawlessness will actually be persecuting the people of God, the people of God are still, they are patient, they are enduring. Here, are the patient, or here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So let's write this in. In stark contrast, God's true followers at the end of time will live a life of full obedience. A life of full obedience that comes from full faith in Jesus' power to save. Amen. In stark contrast to the picture that we just saw, I, I never knew you. Lawlessness will abound and the love of many will grow cold. In stark contrast to that, God will have a faithful people who live lives of full obedience out of full faith in Jesus' power to save. And you know what? Their obedience will, be, will overflow from a heart of love. Notice what John chapter 14, verse 15 says. If you love me, what will be the consequence? You will keep my commandments. Maybe you've heard this verse before. Uh, if you love me, keep my commandments. Right? More as an instructive or imperative. But again, the grammar there can actually be translated both ways. <laughs> so cool. That when we are in a love relationship with God, the natural consequence, the natural byproduct is a life of obedience to God. So there, the rest of that little paragraph that we just read, their love for God, their love for God will be revealed in obedience to God. And again, this is the very opposite of lawlessness and lovelessness that abounds at the end of time. This is incredible. This is incredible. What? Because God's grace works the miracle of transformation in our lives. God's grace inspires a love that lives in obedience to God. Amazing grace, right? How sweet this sounds. Let's save a wretch like me. It delivers us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin in our lives. That's what grace does. This helps us make sense of the, the high language that James uses uh, in the New Testament. We've already read it. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. This is why James talks about God's law as a law of liberty. In fact, later on in chapter 2, I think in verse 8, he, he describes it as the royal law. The royal law, it gives people, or it leads people to the life that we were always meant to live. <laughs> the freest life possible. Remember in Exodus chapter 20, the law was articulated to and given to a redeemed people. A people freed from the house of bondage, freed from slavery. To reveal how the most free life is meant to be lived. Free from the burden of serving multiple gods, right? Free from the burden of having to work, work, work yourself to death. Free from the burden of familial strife and marital unfaithfulness. Free from the burden of, of the consequences of dishonesty. Free from the burden of envying others. Free from the burden of material discontent, etc., etc. When James says this is the law of liberty, hey, this is how you live free. Later on in chapter 2, he says this is the royal law. This is how children of the Most High God live. I love it. So, here as we wrap up, I want us to just ask a little practical question here. If this is what God's law is to be in our lives, 
how do we make that our experience? How does that actually become the, the defining tone of my life? Because you and I know the struggle, right? You and I, I think Paul puts it really well in Romans chapter 7. I think it's verse 17 that he says, you know, the good thing I know I should do, that's not what I do. And the thing that I know I shouldn't do, that's what I end up doing. We all know this struggle. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 says that the flesh is at enmity with the law of God. We don't, we don't have it in our natural capacity to line ourselves up with the will and way of God's free life. So how? How do we actually go about doing this? How do we overcome that? I just want to share with you what I found to be, um, I don't want to call it a secret sauce or magic formula, <laughs> but it is the gospel message. In, in a Psalm, let's go here, Psalm chapter 40. Psalm 40, verse 8. This is what David writes in, in this beautiful psalm. You can read the whole song later on tonight. It says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is where? Within my heart. Within my heart. You starting to pull those things off the shelf in your mind? See, this was written by King David, one who had his own struggles with some serious sin. Okay? King David, uh, he struggled with adultery, murder, uh, deception, you name it. And in this psalm, he's singing of God's rescuing power to lift him out of the miry clay, set his feet down in a, in a solid path, a new life of changed desires. You hear that? I delight to do your will. You know, God doesn't just long for the obedience of just outwardly conforming. He wants us to value what he values, to delight in what he delights in. And this is what David is testifying of. This is what God's grace did for me. He picked me up and now I delight to do his will. Why? Because his law is where? In my heart. Notice this one in Philippians. This is now from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. For it is God who works in you both to what? Will and to do for his good pleasure. So again, God is working in us, not just to perform the actions that are pleasing to him, but to actually want to do the actions that are pleasing to him. Remember the, the types of fall that we were talking about? It wasn't just a moral fall that we suffered in the Garden of Eden. It started here. It started here. So King David says, hey, grace has actually made me delight to do God's will. Why? Because his law is within our heart. And here's Paul, who actually, according to his own testimony in Philippians chapter 3, said he never broke the law. He was blameless. <laughs> he was lawless in that second sense of the term. And then he testifies to God's grace. You know what? God's grace has worked in me to will and to do of his good pleasure. Ooh. And that can be our experience too. <laughs> there in your handout, let's write this down. Oh, I guess there's nothing to write down. If both King David and the Apostle Paul <laughs> experienced the miracle of God's grace to internalize God's law, we can too, right? This can be our experience too. I love this. Here's a promise. Uh, oh man, do we have time for this? Yes, let's go, let's go. Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36. This will be the last one that we open to. Ezekiel 36. You just need to know it. If you have your own Bible or if you're planning on securing this seminar Bible for yourself, 
This is one that you can highlight after night seven. All right. Ezekiel 36. This is page 1088 in your seminar Bible. When you're there, say, I beat you. All right. Good work. Good work. Ezekiel 36. Amen. I'm there. Okay. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27. This is God's promise to you and me. He says, I will give you a what kind of heart? A new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You didn't know God was a heart surgeon, did you? (laughs) He's going to perform heart surgery in us, taking out our heart of stone, our hard-hearted hearts, giving us a heart of flesh. I, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Praise Jesus. Right? What Paul was talking about, God works in us to willing to do his good pleasure. How does he do that? Well, he takes our old heart. He gives us a new. He actually puts his spirit in us to cause us, to motivate us, to do the very things that the free life was meant to do. (laughs) And in Hebrews chapter 10, This promise, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their where? Into their hearts. And in their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their what kind of deeds? On their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Remember lawless. Kind of the... The the dual aspect of lawless, as in the blatant opposition or disregard of God's law, as well as the subtle substitution of doing my works to fulfill God's law. I don't know if you heard my language there. sounded a lot like last night when we were talking about the principles of the Antichrist. That idea of lawless one that was described in 2 Thessalonians, when we're talking about lawlessness, that's kind of the... That's where the Antichrist shows up in our own spiritual lives. That's the spiritual principle of Antichrist. Not just doing away with God's law and disregarding it, but subtly substituting ourselves as our own Savior. But the gospel promise is he's going to give us a new heart. He's going to write his law on our hearts. Do you remember where God puts his law? In the sanctuary? What part of the sanctuary? The most holy in the Ark of the Covenant that represented the very throne of God. God puts his law in his throne. When he promises, I'm going to write my law on your heart. Do you know what he's saying about your heart? That our hearts would become his throne. How many of you want that tonight? (laughs) Sign me up. We've got response cards. Our table hosts are going to pass those out to you. Response cards. If you just want to say yes to the Lord, give smiley faces to God. I don't know, whatever it is that you want to. uh, We've got a few options there. The message was clear. It was a blessing to me. There's some questions you have about this presentation. Go ahead and share those with us. Um, Other prayer requests, ways that that you feel the need for support in prayer, please let us know. I'll give you a few moments for that. Oh man, God is good. 
Yeah. Are you thankful for God's grace? Yeah. The miracle of what he does to write his law on our hearts, to transport his throne to your very heart and mind. Beautiful. Oh, what a message. This is God's desire. Go ahead and fill that out as you feel so moved. And the point is this, you know, we've seen it kind of in, in a long sequence here. Satan's desire is to abandon God's law. God has said, no, this is enduring, and I want to write it on your hearts. He wants to make our hearts his throne tonight. So when we throw ourselves upon the grace of Jesus, God gives us a new heart, a new spirit. He writes his law upon our hearts and minds. He changes the hard drive, so to speak, replaces all of our lawlessness, all of our disregard of his commandments, as well as our thinking that we can keep his commandments on our own. And so tonight, I just want to give you permission to say yes to the Lord as you're filling that out. Let's, let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer here tonight. God, we thank you that you are good. And sometimes I think we underestimate just how much you want to do to not only forgive our past, but to completely transform our lives. Lord, what we lost in the garden, you are fully able to restore. And tonight, we just want to say, yes, God, we... We took you off the throne of our hearts, and tonight you are, you are extending the power of grace to make our hearts your throne once again. And so tonight, we just want to say yes to that. And with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, I want to give you permission. If you tonight, if you feel in your heart of hearts that your conscience is pricked, and there's something about this law of liberty that you've been pushing away, something in relation to your walk with God that you just want to surrender to Him, whether it be uh, something regarding your relationship with God or relationship with others, whether it be about your own sense of purity or integrity in work, an addiction, a sense of, of innocence that you have lost, if you just want to surrender that to God tonight, go ahead and just raise your hand to heaven. Cast that care, cast that sense of separation between your heart and God to him and allow his grace to do only what his grace can do. And that save us. Father, you see the hands that are raised tonight. And like David, we ask that you would lift us up out of the miry clay of our transgressions, our shortcomings, the miry clay of our cherished sins, and our crushing shame. God, tonight we see that perfect law of liberty. We realize how far we've fallen from your glory. So tonight we are running to the Savior, <laughs> reaching for him just now, reaching for grace. Thank you for the way that grace has already reached for us. So fulfill this promise. Write your law in our hearts. Give us heart surgery today. Make our hearts your very throne, we pray. In Jesus' redeeming and saving name, let everyone say Amen and amen.